As always, thank you, Randy. Appreciate that introduction. And yes, it's Valentine's Day, and I just want to wish my uh, my good-looking partner, uh, Red, <laughs> of 28 years, I want to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. And all of you. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe this is a Hallmark moment. Uh, my, my wife tends to kind of think these are Hallmark moments and things that sell candy and flowers and cards. Uh, but still, it's a day when we say we express our love to one another. And uh, because I'm, we're not able to do that in person, uh, I want to convey our deepest uh, love for you as a community and how much we dearly miss you and, and how much we care for you. And uh, not, not just the pastoral staff, but the entire teams at, here at Church of the Red Door. So uh, it's a thrill to be with you this morning. Um, let, I know Randy's open to some prayer, but let me just uh, add a quick little uh, request uh, Jesus said, you know, pray at all times and don't lose heart. And I think of that often. Uh, so Lord Jesus, we are praying at all times. Pray that you'd speak to us today, that you'd communicate something through this incredible gospel of Luke that we're working our way through, Lord. Impact us. Speak to us where we are. Uh, everybody needs some encouragement, myself included. So I pray that your spirit would, would come down now powerfully and uh, empower your word uh, to affect our hearts and Go deep into it and make a substantive change in the way we view reality and the way we view others and, and the whole course of our lives. So we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you ready to roll? And we're going to continue. We're going to finish up or attempt to finish up Luke chapter 4. We're not actually going to gonna take us the next two weeks. Uh, and we're going to really get into this. Uh, I don't know about you, but there's just a lot of you, and I, I speak with a lot of you over the course of the week, and uh, many of you say, you know, I'm just so concerned about our country, and, and obviously the pandemic, we've talked about that ad nauseum, and uh, we've been under a very strange uh, world that we're living in now, and uh, many of you have more concerns about just the United States in general, uh, maybe the world as a whole, but more specifically United States in general, and just concerns you have about the future for maybe your kids or your grandkids or, or whatever that is. And uh, I got to tell you, this is a sobering time in the history of not only our country, but just uh, in the Christian community and what it means to be an evangelical. It's probably one of the um, most uh, disliked terms right now by both some of the evangelical community because we feel like we're pigeonholed. I'm an evangelical, someone who con is concerned about talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus, talking about the redemptive plan. But now it's been uh, moved into all other kinds of realms and it's been politicized and all these other kind of things. And so we feel this internal uh, turmoil. Uh, and I'm just telling you, this helps me just to go back 2,000 years, look at the life and the teaching of Jesus just brings me, well, it brings me peace. You know, the kingdom of God, Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 14, it's not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And when I think about that, I, I say, yeah, I can have that even in the midst of what may I may perceive to be or legitimately may be turmoil, chaos, anarchy, all those kinds of things around me. I can still have a stabilizing force. And of course, we know that's Jesus. So what better way to continue to stabilize our lives than to build our lives on the ministry, the life, the teaching of Jesus. And so that's exactly what we're gonna to continue to do this morning. So if you'll remember last week, uh, we kind of completed this. We, I, I entitled the two-week message, Jesus, the scroll, and the edge of a cliff. 
We talked a little bit last week about what it means, uh, how we sometimes unwittingly throw Jesus off the cliff in our own lives. That voice that would speak to us, where it, there's always pushback because there's always a, a cross involved. And we push back on many of those things. But it was in the context of Jesus having read, as we talked about for two weeks, Isaiah chapter 61, and saying, these things are being fulfilled in your hearing. Now again, I, I want to take just a pause here because uh, once you read Isaiah 61 and you realize the ramifications and the power and the, and the whole change of human history, the, the course of human history has changed, that's the view, that's the worldview of someone who follows Jesus. That moment is such a seminal moment in the life of, in the ministry, in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus that uh, it just continues to reverberate down through the last 2,000 years and changes our lives. And now, this morning, we're going to look at what happened after he left the synagogue. We'll see that he made his way towards Galilee, the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum, and he did much of his ministry in that very region. Quite frankly, as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, we look at that virtually every Christmas season. We look at Isaiah 9, uh, the promise that there would be a light that would come out of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles, and it would shine on those people who lived in darkness. It was an amazing prophecy given by Isaiah. We're going to look this morning at a few more of Isaiah's prophecies as it relates to Jesus' next step. Now, the first thing that Jesus is chronicled in terms of what Jesus did, we pick up in the next few verses, and it's going to be really helpful. So we're going to see two encounters that he has. He's going to be doing two things in fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He's going to be addressing spiritual demonic forces, number one, and he's going to begin his ministry of healing. Now, he'd already done some healing prior to Nazareth experience and him reading 61. We don't know exactly all that that entailed. His name had already become somewhat famous, but we get a more detailed account here as he makes his way about 25 miles from Nazareth back to the Sea of Galilee to this place called Capernaum. And that's where we pick it up this morning. You ready for this? Come on now. I mean, get ready. We're, we're going deep this morning, and it's going to be, I hope, an exciting and exhilarating thing, again, to refocus. Lord Jesus, we just want to think about you, what you said. We get so distracted by all the things around us. Let us center in on you for these next few minutes together this morning. So Luke chapter 4, verse 31, and we're going to read 31 through 37. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Not too uh, different than what he had just done at the synagogue in Nazareth. And they were amazed at his teaching. We see constant amazement when people are around Jesus. Uh, why? He's the source of all amazement. We, I mean, he's the creator. All things have been created by him and for him, and nothing's been created apart from him, Paul would later say in his letter to the Colossians. It says they were amazed at his teaching. Why? And we're going to discuss this in a minute. Because his message was with authority. And I want to, I want to dive into that just a little bit this morning. And well, what does that mean? What does a teaching with authority entail? What does that really mean? Why were they so captivated? Anybody can amaze someone, but to teach with authority takes it again to a next level. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? So they knew exactly, I'm going to look at that again this morning as well. They knew exactly who Jesus was. 
Many of the people around today think they have a concept of who Jesus was, but let me tell you something, the spiritual realm, certainly the angelic realm, but then even the, the fallen angelic realm, the, the demonic realm, uh, the adversary's realm, they know exactly who Jesus was. Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? It's a question they're asking. I know who you are. They know who he is. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing any harm. And again, amazement came upon all of them and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out, and the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Again, this is northern Israel. This is well north of Jerusalem. But word was getting out all over this section. Uh, just as Isaiah had seen, uh, there was a light that was dawning, and people were amazed, and they were like, this is, this is done with authority. Now, just a little bit about Capernaum. Capernaum is where Peter lived. And Capernaum was right, if you've ever been with me to Israel, uh, it's right there on the sea. That's kind of where that space shuttle looking thing is kind of built over the remains of what many believe to be Peter's house. And there are good reasons to believe that. Some of the inscriptions and some of the things that they found. And it's actually right next to a synagogue. Now that synagogue was most probably built a, a century, a few centuries later. Uh, much of this has been, you know, when we're talking 2,000 years, you're talking about a lot of things that occur, but things continue to be unpacked. But there is a synagogue just up and around the Galilee, just a little bit further up at a place called Magdala, which is kind of more of a recent discovery where we know Mary Magdalene, she was from Magdala, a synagogue that would have been exactly the time of Jesus. And my I wasn't, didn't even, we couldn't go there, but this last trip that I took, we actually went there. And there's a high probability that Jesus would have actually taught in the synagogue that's a little bit north of Capernaum. But Capernaum's interesting because uh, why there? Why would Jesus have centered much of his teaching and the miracles that he was doing? Why would he have centered it there? Uh, why not Jerusalem? And of course, that's the question that we have to ask. Well, number one, I would say that it was a, certainly a city on the sea, which was significant uh, because of uh, all the, the Gentiles that lived there, and Jesus knew ultimately he'd be a light to the Gentiles, but the Roman troops were uh, stationed there. It was kind of a wild place. It was a wealthy city uh, based on the trade. Uh, it was filled with Roman troops, and obviously message got out. Uh, the word got out. It was a place that kind of spread all over the Mediterranean, again, because of the Roman occupation. It was... Uh, it was a perfect place, quite frankly. And of course, God doesn't do anything that's not perfect. And it was also a people that would be somewhat receptive to the message of Jesus. And, and much of his teaching, as we've said, was done in the Galilee region. So now I'm going to ask you the next question. What was it about Jesus' teaching that made it so amazing? And why amazing? Because it was also done with such authority. I think of a few things when I think about the authority. What, what was it about Jesus' teaching that, 
lend itself to people in people's minds to say this is teaching with tremendous authority. Well, number one, it was different in style and content. He wasn't pointing ever, again, I talk about this often, but he wasn't really pointing to the truth. He was teaching with great authority and talking, uh, the rabbis obviously were quoting and Jesus quoted the Old Testament, but Jesus was, it was new and different and vibrant. And he was, again, often pointing to himself. He didn't seem like a guide that was pointing to the truth. It, it was more like, no, he was, everything he was teaching was pointing again to his father, but also to himself. And it was different in that way. Number two, it seemed to cut through all the, the nonsense of the heart. We, we are such a deluded people. Uh, I can say that about myself. I, I often think, well, I perceive myself to be one way, and then I, and I open and I listen to Jesus' teaching, and it cuts through, and I'm like, it's somewhere deep in the recesses of my own heart. I'm like, of course that's right. Of course it is. I can't continue to delude myself into thinking I'm something that I'm not, his teaching, but it was also done with such care and compassion. So it was both cutting and yet it was compassionate. Uh, and that, let me tell you something, that, that you can find cutting teaching everywhere and you can find a lot of loving, compassionate teaching. But to blend both, as again, we've looked at many times, behold both the kindness, Paul tells the Romans, behold both the kindness and the severity of God. And Jesus did that with immaculate perfection. It was just amazing how he was able to both offend in one moment and yet console in the next. And of course, that's what the Bible does. It solves, it diagnoses the problem, and then it's able then to solve it. Uh, now, what's obviously clear, and he taught with authority, he was backing it up with incredible power, as we'll see. Not only this uh, interaction with the demonic realm, but then eventually even with healing. Okay, and then lastly, his his teaching about himself was in, increasingly the consummation of all the prophets had foreseen. In other words, he was beginning to make sense, even though this was early stages, and many of them it would take many years before even the disciples before they fully began to understand everything that he taught. But he was beginning to feel, fulfill not only direct prophecies but begin to fill in some of the blanks about, as an example, we'll talk about this a little bit later, the victorious, what? The, the wounded victor, as we'll see in Genesis 3, as we'll go back. Uh, how do you have two, and we talked a little bit about, that, about this last week, how do you have two kind of messianic-looking prophecies where one is suffering and one is a ruling and reigning sovereign king? How do you, how do you mix these two? So he was bringing these two together as an example. And then he again began to, some of these prophecies that seemed to almost indicate, again, I think of Isaiah 9, uh, a child will be born and his name will be, you know, God, will be wonderful counselor, will be uh, a mighty God. I mean, how do, you, how do you square divinity living in human flesh? Now, again, many of them didn't see that coming, but he was beginning to fill in some of the blanks as he began to make claims of divinity. And obviously they knew, well, this is Jesus of Nazareth. So this authoritative kind of teaching was grabbing everyone's attention. And again, let's not forget, and it's the subject really that we're going to look at this morning. He was addressing and taking authority over the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, and he was taking authority over disease. And those two things were clear, clearly, 
fulfillments of what he had stood up and said, these things are being fulfilled in your hearing. Proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, and all the other prophecies that, like Isaiah 35, talking about the, the lame leaping and the deaf hearing and all these kinds of things that somehow hundreds of years in advance that there's something coming, there's someone coming, and he's going to fulfill all these kinds of things. So this is a powerful indication of why they were seeing Jesus teach with such authority. Okay, so now I want to laser focus in on uh, this interaction he's now having, this dominance he's beginning to take over the demonic realm. Let me tell you something. He was causing, Jesus caused, and he does to this day, Jesus in you to this day, causes tremendous turmoil in the demonic spiritual realm. Tremendous turmoil. You, if Jesus lives on the inside of you, you are a threat to the limited kingdom that is the dark kingdom that is this world. You are a threat. People are always surprised when people undergo great persecution or when they undergo great turmoil. And they seem to be godly people, people who are living for Jesus. People are surprised that they undergo such uh, powerful things that seem to come against them. That should not be in any way a surprise. You, if Jesus lives on the inside of you, it causes turmoil, great turmoil in the spiritual realm. And clearly Jesus was doing exactly that. So there's two things I want to note this morning about his interaction with the demonic realm. Two things. Number one, well, the answer is, is an, in an ultimate way, did Jesus destroy the works? They asked the question, have you come to destroy us? And the question then is, did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? Well, the answer to that is both yes, and, and but not completely. But in an ultimate way, Jesus absolutely destroyed the works of the devil. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same. In other words, he took on human flesh. And through death, listen to what Jesus did. He might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So through Jesus' vicarious death on our behalf, through his death and resurrection, he rendered Satan powerless. That's what Paul is telling, uh, talking to uh, the letter that he writes to the early Jewish believing community. And that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. So now again, this gets back to Isaiah 61. Proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to to prisoners. What freedom was that? What, what kind of freedom was that? Again, you'll remember as we talked about, the religious Jewish leaders were saying, we're, we're, not, we're not slaves of anybody. We are free. And yet Jesus said, no, you're a slave of sin. And not only were you a slave of sin, you were a slave of the fear of death that controls us. Uh, think about this for a second, folks. How many people, if we were just go out in culture, are dominated by the fear of death. People freak out about death because they see it as ultimate. It's over. Death occurs from a materialistic worldview. It's all over. Death is the end of you. 
your consciousness, your, your makeup, whatever it is, it's over. And of course, that lends itself to tremendous fear, tremendous concern about the future. What Paul is saying here is not that Satan, uh, the adversary, was rendered powerless and has no ability to bring chaos into the world. Certainly and clearly he does. He still tempts. Why would we be praying? You know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why would Jesus have told us to pray that if, if Satan, if the devil didn't have a continuing ability and power? But here it says that he was rendered powerless. In what sense? In the ultimate sense. In the ultimate sense, he was rendered completely powerless. The fear of death, it no longer exists for those who are in Christ. I have, let me tell you something, I've told you this before, I will continue. From that moment I chose to follow Jesus, I've never had not one, not one moment of fear of death. If I were to get a horrible diagnosis tomorrow, heaven forbid, and some of you even now have gotten some pretty bad diagnoses, but I've talked to many of you, there's no fear of death in your eyes. And if there is, then there needs to be a deeper understanding of what Jesus taught about himself, about the future, about the resurrection. And this is part of the discipleship process. But for those who understand the word and what Jesus said, in an ultimate way, the devil has been rendered completely and utterly powerless as it relates to death. And that's exactly what Paul is suggesting here. He just can't brutalize people with the fear of death anymore. Ultimate death and even the thought of death has been absolutely eviscerated to those who would simply believe. Now, let me tell you something. If you're watching this right now and you've never made the step, taken the step to be a follower, and you, you, you've never really turned around and gone the other way, can I just tell you right now? You can do that right now. Lord Jesus, I choose to follow you. And in following you and giving my life to you, I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to begin to listen to your voice. I know that the fear of death can completely be eradicated from my life. De the devil has been rendered powerless. Now, clearly, again, let me restate. The devil has not been rendered powerless in his ability to bring chaos, tyranny, pain, suffering, even in the lives of believers. And God, in some way, in his magnificence, even uses suffering to hone us into the image of his son. We've talked about that many times before. 1 John chapter 3, again, getting back to this you know, why were they talking about this? Have you come to destroy us? Well, they knew exactly Jesus of Nazareth. They knew he was the Holy One of God. And listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. I've quoted this many times. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. So, have you come to destroy us? Well, in that moment in time, some were cast into swine, as we'll see later and as we go through the Gospels, and, and others were uh, obviously cast out. But ultimate destruction, ultimate separation, ultimately the lake of fire, as we'll see in Revelation, where ultimately the dragon or the serpent or the adversary himself is put forever and ever. Uh, yes, the ultimate plan is destruction, but on in the immediate sense, their power of death over humankind was going to completely be altered. And in that sense, yes, he was there to destroy them. And then Matthew 12, verse 28 through 29. 
But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, this is Jesus speaking, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So one of the indications that the kingdom of God has come upon us or come into our midst is that Satan is being cast out of people, people who were slaves. This is why, again, I proclaim liberty to captives, captive to sin, captive to the adversary, his lies, his deceptions, his twisted lies. And we'll see in a minute, it's exactly how he's described, even in the Old Testament. The twisted one, the deceiver, the one who twists the truth. It's exactly what he did in the garden with Eve and Adam, and it's exactly what he continues to do today. He is a twister of things. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So yes, Jesus came to earth to tie up, if you will, an, another metaphor that we're using here, uh, to tie up, to bind Satan in an ultimate sense from being able to have that cloud of fear of eternal separation or eternal non-existence, the lies that uh, the adversary perpetuates on people's minds those are being, again, destroyed. Now, let's go back now to the Old Testament and see the same thing. I mean, this is not something that Jesus just plucked out of the air and has begun a, you know, a magic trick of some sort, that he has authority over the demonic. This was the promise from the beginning. As early as Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3, we will again see this concept emerge of the wounded victor. How, how can these two merge. How can you have a triumphant king on one hand, and on the other hand, you have a suffering servant? And we see it as early as Genesis chapter 3, and we get a picture of the destruction of Satan himself right after the fall. So let me read Genesis 3, 12 through 15. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate of it. And so Adam blaming Eve, as we've looked at before. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we have the adversary in the garden doing his twisting, his deception. He is John 8, verse 44, the father of all lies. He can only tell lies. Everything that emanates from his nature is a lie. And you have to understand that. So again, this speaks to any time I talk to it as it related to the Capitol Hill riots and everything else, anytime we find we can easily find ourselves partnered without even being a, a, a completely aware of it with Satan himself. And we'll see that in a minute as it related to Peter. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat the dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And again, here we have the victor. He will crush your head, but we have the wounded victor in that and you will strike his heel. So right there in Genesis 3, the, very, the third chapter of our holy, precious book called the Bible, we already have the whole plan. And Jesus now is emerging and saying, that's going to be me. I'm going to crush Satan. In other words, he has authority. He's going to have authority over the adversary, but I'm also going to be wounded in the process. He's going to bruise my heel. Again, as I've said many times, a bruise on a heel, a heel you can go down, but you don't go down for good. You can get back up from a heel shot. But a head shot is a devastating blow that will bring ultimate demise. Again, there it is. This is uh, the very beginning of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Profound, 
and exactly what Jesus, that's why he's going in and casting out the demonic. That's why the demonic is emerging around him. I mean, how, how long was that man possessed? How did this demonic entity present itself in some powerful way prior to that? Or was it, he was just fine, just torturing this man inside. But then Jesus comes onto the scene. They immediately recognize him and they begin to freak out. Are you here to destroy us? And again, the answer is yes, but not completely and ultimately at this exact moment. But in an ultimate way, of course I am. It's the very purpose for which I came. Again, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the adversary. Perfect alignment with Isaiah 61, of which he began his ministry in Nazareth in that synagogue. Proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now I want to take you back quickly to Isaiah chapter 27. And again, we get this kind of picture. Now, clearly this prophecy has a direct application. Could be Assyria, certainly probably was Egypt, even could relate to Babylon. Not too dissimilar to what we see about Satan and his forces and and we get some glimpses into that in the context of the king of Babylon, king of Tyre that we see in Ezekiel and Isaiah. So sometimes we get information about Satan through uh, his operations through a king or a nation or, or people. But you get information about Satan and his activities, about the adversary and his activities. Isaiah 27, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And we're going to get some insight again into what happens and why is Jesus casting out the demonic. Again, this is act one, if you will. Jesus comes on the scene, he reads, and then he begins to cast out the demonic, and he will during the entirety of his ministry. Let's go back 700 years and see the effect of this serpent, this twisted one, this Leviathan, if you will, and how what his demise is. So Isaiah 27, the Lord will punish with his sword, his fierce, great, and powerful sword. Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. Now, Leviathan can could have meant a number of things. It could mean kind of the mythological entity called a dragon. We get that picture often in scripture. We actually finish the, the text in Revelation with this picture of the serpent or the dragon or a crocodile or some kind of twisted reptilian sea monster, sea creature. This was Leviathan. It was something that emerges out of the sea. And we see that over and over in the language used to describe. These are, these are just similes, if you will. Satan is like a what? Like a Leviathan, like a dragon, like a snake. Again, was it actually a talking snake in the garden or was that just a figure of speech, a, a symbol used for Satan as we see all the way through the scripture? I don't know. I can't answer that. But I can tell you that dragons don't exist, but the picture of the dragon exists and that's the adversary. He will slay the monster of the sea in that day, verse 2. Sing about a faithful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me, I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire. So what we're seeing is that when the sword goes at this Leviathan, this, this serpent, this dragon, crocodile, whatever it is, as the sword comes toward the Leviathan, what happens? Fruitfulness, 
Briars and thorns are always a picture of the curse. We can go back to Genesis 3 and see, because of the curse, when you plant your seed, you know, thorns are going to come up. It's a picture, a descriptive picture of the curse. Then the curse is removed. It's the curse is set on fire. Here's what Isaiah has seen. Or else, else, verse 5, let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. Now, we see, so as the sword goes into the serpent, fruitfulness comes, the curse is removed, and peace is reestablished with man and God. Look, you can't have peace with God if you're possessed by the demonic. Why did Jesus come? Why do we see this in Luke chapter 4? That he immediately begins to confront the demonic realm, and they're terrified. Because how can man be free to have relationship with the creator of the universe if he's possessed by the demonic? It's impossible. So it's part of the ministry of Jesus in perfect complicity with what Isaiah, the prophets, everyone had seen all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the wounded victor. Verse 6, in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will bud and blossom and fill the world with fruit. That's happening literally in our day. Flowers and fruit are coming out of Israel. They supply so much. It's a beautiful growing climate. But I don't even think that's the specific point here. The point is that they did fill the world with fruit. I I looked at something this last week with our partnership with Israel College of the Bible and Seth Postel, the dean of students, was talking about it may seem like the Jewish people rejected Jesus, but in fact, it was from the Jews, those early followers of Jesus, that filled the world with fruit as the gospel went forth through Paul, Barnabas, Mark, I mean, all all, all the early Jewish uh, missionaries that went into Macedonia, early you know uh, remnants of uh, to Rome, all over the Mediterranean, they were at that time beginning to fill the world with fruit. I'm a recipient of that. Many of you are recipients of that fruit. Verse seven: Has the Lord struck her at, as He struck down those who struck her? Has He has she been killed as those who killed her? By warfare and exile, you contend with her. With His fierce blast, He drives her out as on a day of the east wind blows. By this, then, will Jacob's guilt be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin? Now we're talking about removal of sin. Look at what happens when the sword goes towards the word of God, if you will, Jesus, if you will, because he is the word, goes and begins to attack the demonic realm. Fruitfulness, the curse removed, care and compassionate concern, protection of, that's what you're seeing here with Israel. And now the removal of sin. And when he makes all the altar stones to be like limestone crushed into pieces, no Asherah poles or incense altars will be standing. So what picture are we getting here from Isaiah? What is Isaiah seeing? He's seeing the destruction of the demonic, of the adversary and his minions. That's exactly what Jesus is engaged in here. And out of that come what? Fruitfulness, Removal of the curse, briars and thorns. Uh, Israel filling the world with fruit. It's exactly what happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, The removal of sin. And then lastly here, the removal of idolatry. You know, we began to love other things. We don't love what we loved before. We began to love righteousness and peace. and, And we have joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an indication that the kingdom has come. Can you see? Of course Jesus had to start by battling the demonic realm because all of these things things were prophesied and this is a natural first act, if you will. And then finally, we get the final verdict 
on Satan and his demise and his destruction. Revelation chapter 20, let's look at verse 2 and also verse 10. And he, and he laid hold of the dragon, again, same thing, Leviathan, dragon, serpent, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, however you would like to interpret that. And then verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown, this is his ultimate verdict, thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is his ultimate destruction at the end of time when the eternal realm would be set up and all things would be made right where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20 verse 10. So in the short term, yes, Jesus came to destroy the works of Satan and what was immediately annihilated was the fear of death. Not all the activity of Satan, but there is coming today a final verdict because of the activity of Jesus on the earth that there will be an ultimate doing away with the adversary and as a result, there will be no more curse, no more pain, no more tears. The lion laying down with the lamb. I mean, this is a, again, a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. Now, I don't know what can get you more excited than that. Now, the second part, and in fact, we're going to pick this up next week. The second part of this, I really want you to understand because we're going to, again, look now next week at the demonic. And first we say, was this destruction? Was this an ultimate victory? But then I want to look a little bit more deeply into, did they really know and understand? Of course, they knew exactly who Jesus was and was, and what are the implications for our life? And can we understand? Can we understand next week? Can we understand why Satan hates us so much? Why does he hate mankind so much? Why so hostile? I mean, I can see why Satan would be angry at God because God has completely shunned him, thrown him, thrown him out of his position, and, and he, he has no future. Satan has no future whatsoever. I can see the hostility in the battle, but why does he hate us so much? And what did he know? What did they know about Jesus? And then secondly, next week, we'll also start looking at the second act, which was what does it mean that Jesus came and what were the implications of his, him beginning a healing ministry? And then does that apply to us today at all? So again, in summary today, what did we look at? Jesus announces, of course, we saw that for two weeks, Isaiah 61. And what does he immediately do? He begins to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. How does he do that? By casting out the demonic by taking authority over the demonic. And that's what led, again, that's what led to much of the amazement because rabbis aren't doing this. They're telling us what all these things mean and they're, they're giving us uh, these diatribes about all this, but we don't really see any power in it. This Jesus has incredible power, incredible authority, and he's backing it up. And what in the world is going on? Even the unseen forces of the demonic realm bow and they know exactly exactly who he is now, i hope this gets you excited uh it's a thrilling to me so are you surrounded by the demonic this morning are you frustrated about our country what's our response advance the kingdom advance the gospel it's the only solution it's not a political solution 
There's no, there is no solution. Advance the kingdom, advance the gospel. Proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners. Take authority over the demonic, cast it out, advance the gospel, see people come to Christ. Of course, people are gonna reject it. They did there in the time of Jesus as well. Our mission has never changed for 2,000 years. So uh, again, how instructive this is to see exactly what Jesus did to accomplish the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61, again, written some 700 years prior to his coming. So I hope this was helpful this morning. We love you so much. Uh, we're excited about, again, the future. Uh, again, we're seeing some, the numbers are coming down here in the Coachella Valley uh, as it relates to the virus. Uh, there is some light at the end of the tunnel. We are certainly hope, hoping that we might even be able to meet by summer in some capacity and maybe be even back into our own digs uh, UCR potentially uh, in the fall. So have a wonderful week. We love you. And uh, anyway, we miss you.